0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The number of COVID-19 cases in Arizona are once again dropping, but the pandemic is still with us. This week, we look at what researchers and others have learned over the last two years. In the second week of February 2020, Arizona had reported fewer than five cases of COVID-19, and we were still nearly a month from the first shutdown in the state. Life was different. Dr. Deepta Bhattacharya is an immunologist at the University of Arizona. He says so much has been learned since the pandemic began.
1: Well, it's been interesting, again, from the perspective as an immunologist, um, because many aspects of the virus's biology has actually conformed pretty well to all the you know decades of viral immunology research that preceded this pandemic, so I think you know it's obviously been um, the most disruptive global experience of my lifetime, but at the same time I mean I think I have to admit that I take a little bit of pride in knowing that uh, all the work that we put in behind the scenes collectively as a field um, really led to some great insights and, and, you know, unprecedentedly fast development of vaccines. But again, when I say unprecedentedly fast, I also mean that that's built on decades of research, too. So we were just really in a great position to actually be able to deal with it. Um, so I, I would say that that's been one of the, the parts that I've been proud of um, as a field. Um, you know, we've certainly learned a lot about um, a lot of social things <laughs> and things that, you know, we can or can't rely on um, as countermeasures. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, I think one of the really clear things is that it's really, really, really important to be as straight as possible with the public, good or bad, um, because when the public feels that they've been misled about something, then that becomes very difficult to regain that trust. Um, from a viral evolution standpoint, I think we are get, we're getting a lot of curveballs thrown at us for sure. I mean, I think that some of the things that we're used to seeing from the other common coronaviruses are not quite yet holding up um, in terms of the predictability, the seasonality of it. My hope certainly is that we will eventually settle into a pattern like that, where the next variant and the timing of the next variant will become a little bit more predictable. But for sure, that's been one of the really humbling experiences as well.
2: Let's talk about variants. Of course, Omicron is on everybody's mind right now. It seems to be dropping off Um Again, the numbers change and they are still fairly high as compared to, to previous parts of this pandemic. Did we learn anything different from Omicron that we learned from Delta or, or any of the other variants?
1: I mean, again, I think the biggest thing is the aspect of viral evolution. Um, there are ways to sort of track how often you predict an new mutation to emerge, um, all other things being constant. And Omicron very much defied that logic. Um, and so there's analysis called molecular clock analysis, and you can basically figure out we are expecting to see X number of mutations over time, and then all of a sudden Omicron comes out of nowhere. Um, you know, exactly where it did come from is, I think, uh, you know, of the matter of some debate. Uh, I, I think that the, the best uh, guess is that it probably was allowed to evolve within a person who wasn't mounting a great immune response, and then it basically allowed it to pick up mutations over months over someone who just wasn't able to clear it. And then it all of a sudden emerged and started spreading. And so I think that's one of the big things that we need to be paying attention to is, uh, you know, being ready for these kinds of jackpot events that the virus might throw at us.
2: Was Omicron or does it appear? And I know everything is is moving constantly uh, and very quickly. Does it appear to be less serious or was it less serious because so many people
1: have been vaccinated? It, it, it certainly is causing less disease in people who have been vaccinated, less severe disease in people who have been vaccinated, especially those who have received a third dose. There's really not much of any question about that. Um, is it intrinsically milder? Um, it, it depends what you're comparing to. I mean, I think that the data seem like it probably is the case that it's milder than Delta, than the Delta variant. It, it's not actually at all clear that it's milder than Alpha or the original ancestral strain.
2: You mentioned earlier hoping for some predictability at some point. Maybe this becomes seasonal. It sounds like in the long term, or at least the near nearer long term, That the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is going to be with us just like the flu, just like so many other things, really largely permanently.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I wish I could say that we had some strategy to eradicate it, but it's not realistic. Um, I mean, clearly it is everywhere, Uh, has many, many opportunities to change and to mutate. Um, I think the biggest issue is that it clearly does have animal reservoirs, so it could jump into an animal change and then come back again. And those are not the kinds of things that we have the tools to eradicate. So, yes, it, it will be with us, um, but I don't think that it's going to continue like it has been for the past two years in perpetuity. And I do really want to make that point. We're not doing this forever for the rest of our lives. Um, as you say, um, the vaccine and, and prior infection induced immunity can reduce the severity of the symptoms. And I think the more exposures we have, ideally but through vaccines, um, that it's going to start to broaden out the immune response. And so that when but inevitably at some point in our lifetimes, that we will get exposed to it. Um, and but if the breadth of that immunity is sufficient to really drive down the severity of the infection, then it's a nuisance. I certainly would prefer not to get it, um, but it doesn't become the this, this sort of the disruptive force that it has been over the past two years.
2: When you say we have an exposure, preferably a vaccine, but the reality is a lot of people are going to get exposures from not the vaccine. Are you talking about one that can be picked up through a test or You just walk by somebody and, you know, in the grocery store or whatever, um, and you never become positive. Is that enough of an exposure to keep our immune system paying attention? Or do we have to have a big exposure and actually, for lack of a better term, catch the virus?
1: There clearly is some minimum infectious dose. You know, you have to see a certain number of viruses. If you see one, probably not much will happen. Um. You know, but, but I can't really put a number and say, okay, you need exactly 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 viruses to trigger and boost up your immune response. I mean, I don't really know that, but there's certainly enough studies that show that, you know, you can see a ramping up of the immune response in people like healthcare workers who are clearly being exposed to the virus, but they never end up testing positive. So that is certainly possible. Um, and so there's just going to be a range of different types of exposures that lead to different magnitudes of immune system boosting. Um, Some of, you know, if you get exposed to a ton of virus, that's going to overwhelm the amount of antibodies you have, and you're going to have to start a new response. You might feel pretty terrible in the the interim. Um, But again, the immune system has a lot of backup layers. I mean, it's not just the antibodies that are already there. When you have been exposed, when you've gotten vaccinated or have recovered from an infection, then you've got a lot of cells in your immune system that are ready to respond more quickly than if you had never seen the virus in the first place. And so, you know, through the addition of all of those things, what will eventually happen is it will become um, not, I wouldn't say necessarily as mild a respiratory infection as, as common colds, um, but it's not likely to something that will land you in the hospital per se, so long as you have some degree of vaccination or uh, infection-induced immunity beforehand. I hate
2: to ask you to pull out your crystal ball on this because I think I know what the answer is, but. I have to ask you, so how long do you realistically think with all your experience and education that we're going to be kind of living in the world we're living in now with maybe vaccines once or twice a year and masking largely and that type of thing?
1: Well, I think vaccines like once every few months is not a sustainable strategy. And I think that many of us feel that. I mean, I certainly don't feel that great after those shots, right? So I'm not looking forward to you know, being asked to take this thing every three or four months. I just, I, people won't do it. Um, so there's a few things that I think can get us to the point that you were talking about where it is a little bit more like flu, where, you know, you probably should get a vaccine in the fall um, just to reduce the chances that you get sick, but not every three months or, or whatever it is. Um, I think one of the most exciting developments is, is what's called a Pansar-Becca virus vaccine. This is a big priority of the WHO. So it, it's, it's um, designed to make sure that you cover an awful lot of possibilities of what the virus may do next. Um, so you, you can also call it a variant-proof vaccine. And you know, I just saw some of the presentations of this last week or the week before. And I, you know, I'm pretty skeptical about most things, but I saw those presentations and I'm actually starting to feel a lot more confident that one can actually generate something that's a lot more variant-proof and bias a lot more time in between vaccines than what we're being asked to do right now. Um, When will that happen? I mean, it almost becomes more of a sociological issue. And at what point, uh, you know, in our country in particular, there's just such extremes. You know, there are people who have been done with it since March of 2020. And there are people who are basically hiding out in their bunkers, you know, despite three doses of vaccines. And so I think somehow or another, people are going to have to come to some equilibrium um, and and sort of, you know, adapt to what we're actually legitimately and realistically able to do to control the virus. We're not going to be able to convince people to do lockdowns for very much longer. We're not going to be able to ask them to, you know, have outdoor mask mandates or things like that. I mean, there's some things that I think that um, are lighter touches that I think could make a big difference, like improving air quality inside buildings. Um, You know, asking people to stay stay home if they're sick, to the extent that they're able, Um, you know, masks if they're sick, you know, I think those are all things that I think you can probably get people to do. But the current restrictions, I don't think, or the current recommendations are not sustainable. So I I think in many ways, what's going to happen is people are just going to get so tired of it, whether the virus has actually evolved, sort of settled into that pattern that I was talking about or not, you know, eventually life is going to get back to sort of, you know, what we were used to pre pandemic,
0: at least in some ways. That was Dr. Deepta Bhattacharya with the University of Arizona. In January, AZPM began a series of ongoing Facebook Live conversations on education during the pandemic. The point of the discussions is not to come to hard and fast conclusions, but to hear firsthand the experiences of students, teachers, counselors, and parents, those who can share their individual perspectives from ground level. So far, we've had sessions with students and teachers. AZPM's Duncan Moon is hosting the events and put together this report for us.
3: Both groups found the onset of the pandemic a shock, and the changes it forced on the education system an unprecedented challenge. At first, at least one of the students welcomed it, thinking it would only last a couple of weeks and looking forward to the unexpected break from the same old routine— but it quickly became clear to all that they would have to prepare for the long haul. For these students, like Brett Lewis, a junior at Tanca Verde High School, being online was stressful and laced with uncertainty. All found it difficult to learn new subjects online, and the give and take between students and teachers on video was awkward and often led to misunderstanding.
1: You couldn't just raise your hand and ask a question right then and there.
2: You would... I have to schedule a meeting with the teacher, and then you would have to have all your questions compiled together to ask at that one time. And then if you got all your questions answered, went back to it, had another question, <laughs> now you got to wait until you can get back on a meeting again.
3: Daniela Kihuis is a senior at University High School, which is part of TUSD. She is active as a leader in student government and says in addition to the inherent difficulties with online group learning, being out of the classroom and away from her peers for so long was a challenge for her.
0: The entire like being online and being isolated was very difficult. I um I kind of found myself I'm um, like kind of being mildly depressed. I feel like I would sleep a lot.
3: But she says the challenge forced her to adapt and to grow.
0: There is like a lot of negative stuff, but there is a lot of positive stuff that came out of it. Like this whole situation kind of helped me learn to advocate for myself more. Like. When I have a question, ask the question, and if I can't find the answer, go to somebody else who might and just use the resources that are given to me, find new ones.
3: All the students found ways to deal with the added stress. Brett Lewis designed a new improved cycling process for his school. Eighth grader Kai Medrano at Basis in Oro Valley took long walks along the trails near his neighborhood. And Juan Moreno, a senior at Sunnyside High School, found a respite in his music. He plays in two mariachi bands and used that to recharge his spirit.
0: I like to express myself through music. It feels like it's like a, like a gateway to get away from everything and just express my feelings without having, needing to talk to anyone else.
3: All of the students are relieved to be back in the classroom and hoping the pandemic doesn't have too many more surprises for them. As far as the teachers remote learning was just as jarring. The National Education Association polled its members in January, and 90% of those teachers said burnout was a serious problem. Even before the pandemic, schools were having trouble retaining teachers, but according to the NEA poll, 80% of teachers say the schools where they work have unfilled job openings, and more than 85% have seen other teachers leaving the profession during the pandemic. With fewer teachers... Those remaining have had to stretch to cover. And to make matters worse, the recent Delta and Omicron variants have forced an unprecedented number of teachers out of the classroom, either with COVID-19 themselves or to quarantine because of proximity to those who have the virus. The teachers in our discussion all confirmed those problems, but said one of the biggest challenges facing them was that the pandemic just made it more difficult to connect with their students. Video classes didn't allow them to read their students' faces and body language like they could in the classroom, especially for those students who used avatars as their video presence during class. The teachers all said that finding new ways to connect with their students and spending more time communicating has reaped benefits for them. Emily Rios teaches Spanish at Tenka Verde High School. She says because of the pandemic, reaching out and working to create relationships with students and their families has become more important than ever.
2: One of the things I learned last year during the pandemic is that some students are not as willing to
1: share. So getting, like knowing their mental health status is not always something that's obvious. Um, And so it sometimes takes the teacher to reach out online. That was really difficult to do. You couldn't really just pull a kid aside like you could in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so finding creative ways to figure out, um, for me, that was a lot of calling home and talking to family members, talking to counselors, um, also talking to other teachers. So if they had that same student,
0: so
3: we kind of would tag team the situation. She says she began giving out her personal cell phone number to parents so they would know who was calling and pick up the phone. Anthony Mendoza teaches fourth grade at Liberty Elementary in the Sunnyside School District. He says the challenges to learning during the pandemic has reinforced for him to take a day-to-day approach to student progress. With so much attention being paid to students falling behind, Mendoza says teachers need to filter out that static and focus on their students' individual progress and meeting them where they are.
1: It's more of that focus on not necessarily perfection and getting it right now, but are you progressing? Are you moving forward? Can we see that you're moving forward? You may not have it yet, but we can see that you're getting there and eventually you'll get there.
3: Looking ahead, all of the teachers are concerned by the number of teachers leaving the profession and the number of positions that are not being filled. Meg Tully, a former high school history teacher and current support facilitator at University High School, says communities must find a way to stem the bleeding.
1: We need to not only get more people in education, we need to really retain the people we have, protect them from burning out, provide support. We just need More boots
3: on the ground. Tully, Rios, and Mendoza warn that without a strong show of support and resources from the state and from local communities, the danger that the negative statistics could continue to spiral down remains a real possibility. For The Buzz, I'm Duncan Moon.
0: AZPM will host another Facebook Live event on education and the pandemic on February 16th at 6.30 p.m. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're taking a look back at life two years into the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, the University of Arizona had a challenge many of us didn't face in our lives, dorms with hundreds of students living together. To help, Dr. Ian Pepper told AZPM's Andrew Oxford that he and his team began testing wastewater.
4: Since then, it's taken off nationally and internationally, uh, WBE is is conducted all over the world, and it really is becoming a new um, discipline. And of course, it's been an evolving discipline, Um, methods evolve; the method of detection evolves, and so quite a few changes since we started. But um, the way we got into this was back in the spring of 2020. I put an advert on the West website that we would take wastewater samples from any utility in the country and analyze for SARS CoV 2, provided the utility would provide funding to cover the cost of the analysis. And it was very exciting. I remember wondering if we would get any takers. Well, yes, we did. We got hundreds of samples from. New York, Los Angeles, Florida, um, Canada, you name it, we got it. And that was a great experience for us because we got very good at testing wastewater for SARS-CoV-2. And for every data set, I would write an interpretation of the data for the utility. So I got very good at equating a given virus concentration in the wastewater with a number of clinical cases in that area at that time. So, fast forward, um, the pandemic hit, the University of Arizona shut down in the March, Spring Break uh, 2020, all classes went online, and that cost the university um, approximately $100 million. Uh, And so... In the summer of 2020, President Robbins um, announced the assembly of seven teams to work on allowing for campus reentry in the fall of 2020. One of the teams that arose was wastewater-based epidemiology. I headed that up, and my task was fairly simple. Ha! All I had to do was monitor campus for one year, and I remember thinking, I don't know how to do this. I've never done it. But we did think about it, and we came up with a plan, which was very successful, Um, and we ended up monitoring student dormitories on the U of A campus. And an important point was that each dorm that we analyzed the wastewater from was the sole um, source of wastewater. In other words, one dorm one sewer, and the virus in that wastewater was from that dorm, and we knew the number of people in that dorm. So we started monitoring six days a week, and um, it was very successful.
2: I've heard you say, poop doesn't lie. What do you mean by that?
4: The phrase poop doesn't lie started out as a catchphrase, but it's come to be that it really is very true. If we test wastewater and find SARS-CoV-2 in that wastewater, it emanated from someone, meaning someone was infected. So poop truly does not lie.
2: How many outbreaks did this detect or potentially prevent?
4: We planned for campus reentry all summer long, uh, weekly meetings of all the teams. Um, and the, About the second day of fall semester, we got a positive wastewater sample. I reported that, and it went up the food chain. And about 11 o'clock that night, I got a call from uh, President Robbins saying, Ian, you know, what are we going to do? So we went and retested the wastewater the next day. And it was, again, positive. And the decision was also made to clinically test uh, all the students in that dorm. So the idea behind wastewater-based epidemiology is let's say you're monitoring 18 dorms and only one of them is positive for the virus, then that's the dorm where you focus your clinical testing. So it really is a means of maximizing your resources and targeting uh, and clinical testing in buildings where you know someone is infected. And In that first case, we found two infected students who were asymptomatic, and since uh, the wastewater is a leading indicator, those students were removed, put into isolation, dorms, and if we had not tested the wastewater and found the two infected but asymptomatic individuals, they would have been free to roam around campus uh, spreading the virus. So, What we did then was not eliminate, but reduce exponential spread. And we repeated that scenario 81 times in that fall semester. And that allowed us to keep the university open, whereas many other universities at that time closed down. So it was successful.
2: How many locations are still tested and how often?
4: We do 18 dorms at the moment. We do nine dorms on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And nine different dorms on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, so it's it's six days a week year round, which is a grind. Um, you have to have redundancy in the team because sometimes someone isn't available, you know they're sick or out of town um, you have to have redundancy in the equipment and and many things happened over the course of the year, you know uh, one time our sampling truck. Stationary and at a light and got rear-ended from behind. Uh, another time, the sampling um, mechanism and pole fell into the sewer, so that was a, an exciting moment as well. But over the course of the year, many things happen. But um, the team has been great, and it's been very exciting to have students working on the project and to see how excited they are because they know they're doing a very meaningful project.
2: Beyond COVID, how do you see this being used uh, here on this campus or with other health issues,
4: potentially? The technology is evolving, and a good example of that is we helped set up a WBE lab in Yuma and help them conduct what we call hot zone monitoring. And the idea behind that was to divide humor up into 13 regions, identify all the high-risk buildings within each region, sample the wastewater from within each region, and then if you get a positive hit on the wastewater, target the high-risk buildings, which could be a school, a prison, uh, a retirement home. And again, it was very successful in uh, preventing or reducing the extent of an outbreak, And this is really the model uh, that people are now looking at using nationally.
0: That was AZPM's Andrew Oxford talking with Dr. Ian Pepper from the University of Arizona. And that's The Buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Samantha Larned is our production assistant, Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.
2: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.